Later, we're going to be dealing with some hypotheticals, so I start, thought I'd start with my own hypothetical. You're with your friend Frank, and I've chosen Frank so as no one thinks I'm talking about them. And you are on a tour of Washington, D.C. And as a part of your tour in Washington, D.C., you get to go visit the IRS building. And you get, uh, hold the booze, there comes a time we get to boo later, okay? Because <laughs> you might like Frank in a second, okay? <laughs> you get a behind-the-scenes tour of the building, including the parts of the building where many of the auditors have their offices, and you're sort of surrounded by their desks, the people that work and do the auditing. And as you are in this section of the building, you say in a somewhat elevated voice, Hey, Frank, don't you believe that taxation is theft and that the IRS is unconstitutional? Don't you, Frank? Don't you believe that about the IRS? And as you are among the people who work at the IRS, who all of a sudden become very interested in what Frank believes about them, you put your friend Frank into a little controversy. Now in this hypothetical, not that any of you would do this to poor Frank. But let's be clear about what you would be doing in this hypothetical story. You're instigating a fight. You chose a specific topic in a specific place, in a place where you know that would not be received well. While this silly story is quite silly, it actually has a lot of connection to our text today. You see, we're continuing on in this part of Matthew where Jesus has these interactions with the Jewish leaders and the people about whether or not he is really the Messiah and whether or not they are going to return in repentance and faith to him. But what connects the two parts of our passage today is that the Jewish leaders who are opposed to Jesus are very clearly and intentionally trying to start a fight between Jesus and other people. And they're going to do this in the topics they choose, like bringing up taxation in the IRS building. But also, they're doing it by who they bring along to the fight. And so as we again look at this story of how Jesus continues to call people to faith and repentance, we're also going to see the wisdom of Jesus in answering very difficult questions with people who are trying to get him in trouble. And from there, we can both learn about these topics for ourselves, but also see that none of these charges, none of these attempts to sully Jesus will work. And he continues as we march towards the cross to be innocent of any charges, and to be a speaker of the wisdom of God. So let's start 
The first part of our story begins, Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 15, and we're going to talk about the trouble with taxes. So let's look at verses 15 to 17. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what, do you, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? The first thing that we need to notice in this part of the passage is that Matthew explicitly tells us the motives of the Jewish leaders, in this instance, the Pharisees. So we read, the Pharisees went and plotted how to entrap him in his words. Very clearly, Matthew is telling us it's a trap. The second thing we need to notice before we get to the actual question is who else is involved in this discussion. So we read that the Pharisees sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Now, let me just let you know, if you don't know much about the Herodians, that's okay. Just know these two groups were not friends. The Pharisees, like most Jews at the time, were not pro-Roman rule. Josephus actually records that in A.D. 6, Judas of Galilee led a revolt against a Roman official because he took a census for tax purposes. Okay, so even when the Roman government just tried to take a census, there was a revolt. But they show up with the Herodians that history tells us openly supported the reigning family of Herod and its pro-Roman sympathies. So these people who are not pro-Roman bring a group of pro-Roman people and then ask, hey, should we pay taxes to Rome? Okay, this is not a sincere question. As one commentator writes, a common enemy makes strange bedfellows. It might help you to picture the strangeness of people all of a sudden working together who are from the far extremes of their perspective parties. When you see two people working together who never worked together before, you're like, hang on, is something up here? And if we were reading this and we were alive at the time of Jesus, when the Pharisees show up with the Herodians, we'd all be like, hang on a second. So, should they pay taxes to Rome? Let's look beginning at verse 18. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Jesus sees right through their plans. 
That's the problem when you try to trick the incarnate Son of God. He's not really trickable. And Matthew tells us that Jesus was aware of their malice. He knows they are trying to discredit him. He knows that they are trying to trap him in his words. And he does not pull any punches here. Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Now let me say, just by way of preview, when we get into chapter 23 in about two weeks, we are going to see some of the strongest language from Jesus in all of the Gospels. And a lot of it centers on this idea of being hypocrites. But we're going to get to that in a couple weeks. But that sort of just gives you this hint of where this will eventually go. But even though he knows they're trying to trap them, Jesus is still going to answer their question, but he's also going to answer it in a way that but that they should have asked. He's going to answer the better question. But let's look what he does. So verse 19. Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, the coin for the tax. And again, in the genius of the teaching of Jesus, oftentimes he answers a question with a question. So verse 20. Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Now part of the genius of Jesus is he uses people's own answers to later convict them of the truth. And probably because they never want to get the wrong answer, the Pharisees answer the question correctly. See, they've never met a quiz they don't like. And they say Caesar is on the coin. And to that, Jesus gives his answer there in verse 21. Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. He will not fall into their trap and deny that taxes should be paid to the government. And for those who are looking to catch Jesus in that, Jesus will also clearly state that God is greater than the ruling government. And we see the wisdom in Jesus in their response to this. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. Again, Jesus' opponents have no answer to his answer, no rebuttal or way to get him in trouble. But I think we should take some time to think about how does Jesus' answer affect our lives? Those of us not trying to catch Jesus in a trap. Jesus is very clear that give to the government what belongs to the government, and he points out the money that was used to pay the taxes. And so we are to see that that Jesus actually cares how you relate to the government. That's not outside of our faith. You know, sometimes we limit our faith to the quote-unquote spiritual things, but every aspect of our life, as we'll see in a little bit, comes under the authority of God. And Jesus includes for that how we interact with the government that we have. So we are to respect and honor those in authority over us. We are to abide by the laws of the country in which we live. And in fact, Jesus paid his taxes. 
But even this is only because the Bible also tells us that those in authority only have authority because God has given it to them. Let me give you both an Old Testament example of this and a New Testament example of this. So, Old Testament, Daniel chapter 2. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Daniel's pretty clear. Kings rise and fall according to the will of God. New Testament example, Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. According to the Bible, government has its appointed sphere of influence given to it by God, and it is under his sovereign control. So if that is true, we must give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And by the way, just as a quick note, if Jesus can say this to the people who lived under the Roman Empire and had way fewer rights than we do, you don't vote for a Caesar. Then how much more are we called to follow those, these words as those who have some of the greatest citizen rights in world history? Now, while that is 100% true, Jesus doesn't just say, hey, pay your taxes. So we are to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but over that, we give to God what is God's. So Caesar might own that coin, but what does God own? What belongs to God? Let me give you one example, Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Okay, Caesar, you get to own this coin. I own the universe. <laughs> yes, you owe the king taxes, but you owe God everything because he owns everything. Caesar can tell you to follow laws, but you must surrender your life to God. Jesus makes it clear. He is not going to fall into this trap in taxes, but he's also going to call them to something greater. That our devotion to God supersedes everything because while the government might own the currency the lord owns the universe and he owns you and because of that yes there are those times those exceptional cases where we must say to those in governing authority over to us as peter said we must obey god rather than men. And there is a history of Christian civil disobedience that comes out of this idea. 
that, that the government does have a sphere of influence, but when the law of God and the law of man contradict that we are called to obey God rather than man. And I would challenge you to learn some of that history. You know, we're not the first Christians who ever lived. And I say this both as a person, but also as a history major. (laughs) We can learn from the past. And it helps us to know when are the exceptional times where we need to practice that civil disobedience and say, no, we must obey God rather than man. You know, depending on who you are and depending on the time period in which you live, there's both a temptation to compliance and a temptation to chaos. There's a temptation to say, I'm never going to speak out against the government for my faith. But there is also the temptation of, I'm going to use my faith to just speak out against everything I don't like. And depending on who you are and depending on your place in history or your nation that you belong to, you're going to feel both those temptations. But at the center, we hold this idea, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. So Jesus paid his taxes and we honor those in authority over us, but we always honor God above all. Let's switch to the second part of our passage. So we go from an argument about taxes to a hypothetical about heaven. So let's look at that beginning in verse 23. The same day the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and the third down to the seventh. After them all the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. As with the previous part of the passage, Matthew clearly shows us that this question of being about being asked to Jesus is not asked in good faith. How do we know that? The Sadducees are going to ask him about the resurrection, verse 28, right? In the resurrection. But how does it begin? Verse 23, the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. We see clearly they're asking about something that they don't even believe. We see the hypocrisy. We see the malice towards Jesus trying to catch him in something that they don't even believe in. And they use this crazy hypothetical. You know, it reminds me, in, in Supreme Court decisions, they, they will use a lot of hypotheticals to say, what will this law turn into? And they talk about a parade of horribles, which is where you give all these terrible hypothetical situations to prove your point. 
And that's what they're doing here. I want you to see how they choose the most unlikely hypothetical. They take it out of the realm of normal. Right? By having seven guys involved and seven guys dying. Again, they mention this law. If a man dies having no children, his mother must marry the widow and raise up the children for his brother. Again, that's a normal part of life that existed especially back then. This idea of your brother dies and you enter into this relationship with his widow. Now it feels very different, and this is not going to be a sermon about like reinstituting leveret marriage, but I want you to see how the argument is done to a ridiculous extent from a place of not even believing what they're saying in an attempt to catch Jesus. But as before, Jesus will answer the question. So let's begin with 29 and 30. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As you can imagine, there's some questions about what is meant here. And as with all things dealing with heaven, we have to be careful because we haven't been there yet. It's one of the parts of our theology that looks forward, not backward. So I think we can safely begin with the idea that there are no new marriages in heaven. Okay, so especially in verse 30, nor are given in marriage. Okay, so I think there's some clarity there. I think that we can also state with some confidence that this includes people not having new babies in heaven. This may be, commentators help us, that this may be in reference to being like angels in verse 30. Okay, so there's not going to be new kids in heaven. This is also, by the way, we're helped that this has sort of an extra punch at the Sadducees because they also denied the existence of angels. So Jesus gives another little, little bump to the, fair, to the Sadducees there. But let me also quickly add that it's a, it does not say we will be angels, right? But that some facets of our resurrection existence will be like the angels. That's a common misconception among many, that when you die and go to heaven, you become an angel. Nope. But Jesus is telling us there are some similarities to our resurrection existence. The next two things I want to address here as we try to understand this part of Jesus' answer has their foundation in that eternal life is going to be perfect in every way. It's hard because we live in a world 
where everything is affected by sin. And it's hard for us to appreciate and understand that our existence in eternal life will be completely free of any sin or even the effects of sin. So with that in mind, let me say a couple things. Number one, if you've been married to more than one person and both of those people are believers, heaven is not going to be awkward for you. You're not going to be like, oh, I hope I don't run into that person in eternity. And I, and I know there are some of you here that, that, for all different reasons, you have been married to more than one person. And you don't have to worry about seeing those people in heaven. Because heaven is perfect. And you don't need to worry about that. You're not going to have an eternity of awkwardness trying to avoid somebody for the rest of your life. Or the rest of eternity. That's like... (laughs) In fact, your relationship in some ways will be the best it's ever been because your relationship will be free of the difficulties that are caused by sin. There was a book, I never actually read it, full disclosure, but some of the best books just have really good titles. And the title of this book, again, don't ask me about the contents, but the title was good, so I give the guy at least three points. When Sinners Say I Do. So much of our conflict, even in our married relationship, is because we're both sinners. And eternity will be free of that. And again, sometimes it's hard for us to to appreciate what perfection is because everything here is imperfect. But let me also give another encouragement. So those who have been married to more than one person, heaven will still be awesome and great and perfect. And you don't need to worry about this hypothetical as the Sadducees laid out. But let me also give some comfort because it's not that our marriage relationships will be annihilated or fully done away with. There are some who take this wrongly and say that that we don't have memories of our previous existence on earth and that is simply just not true. You will know your spouse, your friends, your family And you are going to continue to enjoy a perfect relationship with all of them in the new heavens and the new earth. And I want you to hear the goodness of God in that there will be no stain of sin in your relationship for all of eternity. Do not fear the unknown of eternity because it is even better than you could even imagine. 
Now, in the next part of the response, Jesus here speaks to that that basic fact of the resurrection. And again, he's fighting with people who don't actually believe in the resurrection. So let's look at that, verses 31 to 33. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Again, there's some difficulties here to understand, but let's work through uh, bit by bit. So first of all, look at verse 31. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? We've seen Jesus do this before. He rebukes the people who were supposed to be the religious leaders of saying, haven't you read your Bible? (laughs) And then he quotes to them. He says, here's how I know there is a resurrection. Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. Now again, Jesus knows his audience. So, Most scholars believe that Jesus intentionally picks Exodus from the the first five books of the Bible because guess what? The Sadducees, we know from history, valued the first five books of the Bible over the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. So Jesus, in a sense, is saying, I'm going to use your favorite books to prove you wrong. And he quotes... I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And this is probably a little different of an argumentation than we were expecting. But let me read you from one of the commentators that I think summarizes the argument well. If God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even when addressing Moses hundreds of years after they died, then they must be alive to him in some way. And, and we're helped also by what Luke records in his telling of the story, where he includes explicitly this statement, for to him all are alive. Again, Jesus is making an argument, maybe in a different way than we would, but the idea is the same. That God is the God of the living, not of the dead. That when you die, you don't just go into nothingness. You don't just melt away into the ether of this universe. If you die as a believer in Jesus, you will experience the resurrection to eternal life. And it is real, and Jesus testifies to the truth of the resurrection here. And again, we see they have no rebuttal. They cannot argue back with Jesus. Now, this is we're going to have one more round of argument next week, and that'll finish up this section of the text. And 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 I want to give you a preview as how Matthew twenty two ends. It ends this way, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. And the other function of that is it's one more step to the cross. 
Again, as I mentioned before, these chapters of Jesus' ministry are sort of bringing to resolution his earthly ministry. And he's closing up and he's giving them every opportunity to turn and repent before it is time for him to sacrifice his life on the cross. And so we will continue that march next week and into the next couple chapters before we get to the death and resurrection of Jesus. But a couple thoughts as we close up this morning. Looking at how these controversies were brought up against Jesus, I want to give you this thought this morning. Beware what I'll call the irrational fighter. Beware the person who will compromise everything to reject Jesus. These people were not actually looking for answers. They wanted to trap Jesus. They wanted to rationalize their rejection of him and cause others to reject him. And they compromised all of their values to this aim. So the Pharisees teamed up with the Herodians. The Sadducees pretended to believe in the resurrection. All of this to reject Jesus. And see the wisdom of Jesus in his teaching, how he interacts with them and the higher calling he places on his people. But ultimately, do not fall into the temptation of these leaders in rejecting Jesus. Rather, repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. Secondly, give to Caesars what is Caesars, but give to God what is God's. It matters to Jesus how we treat and interact with those whom God has placed in authority over us. And if Jesus says this about the Roman Caesars, how much more us? And at the same time, Everything belongs to the Lord. No king or Caesar can compare to him. We owe taxes, respect, and honor to the governing authorities over us, but we owe Jesus our lives. And there will be times where we must stand and say we must obey God rather than man because God is greater than any man. And then thirdly, the resurrection is real and it will be perfect. The foolishness of the Sadducees is that they tried to trick Jesus with a question about the resurrection when they didn't even believe in the resurrection at all. And Jesus is completely clear. The resurrection is real. And those who place their faith in Jesus have the real hope of resurrection and eternal life. And eternal life will be more perfect than we can fully understand. We will be with God face to face and sin and its consequences will be no more. No longer will our sin cause conflicts in our relationships. No longer will sin cause brokenness in how we relate to family and friends. And they to us. And in the resurrection, death is no more. Sin is no more. And we will enjoy eternity together with our God, our spouses, our family, our friends, and all of our brothers and sisters in Christ that we will meet one day. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you for Jesus answering these questions about how we relate to government and how we understand the resurrection. 
that as we trust him and how we relate to the governing authorities that you have placed over us, but that we would ultimately surrender our lives to you above all. And we thank you for the hope of the resurrection. We do not have to fear death. And one day we will experience perfect relationships with one another when sin and death are destroyed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for watching this video from Hillside Evangelical Free Church. Our hope is that these resources will help you grow as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. We're located in Greenbank, Washington on Whidbey Island. And if you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to have you join us. You can find out more information at our website at hillside-efc.com.